Well, hello. I'm Harley, and this is Deadly Damsels, Women Who Kill, where I tell you crazy stories about women who decided to kill. Is that intro getting old yet? (laughs) I know it probably is, but listen, this was the very first intro I ever came up with, so I feel like I actually didn't really come up with it. It just kind of came out because I was trying not to overthink it too much, but I feel like I'm kind of stuck with it now, so... Hopefully, that's okay with you. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about Julia Enright, a woman who lured her ex-boyfriend over and killed him as a gift for her new boyfriend. Julia Enright grew up in a small Massachusetts town called Ashburnham. She had lived on a farm with her parents. She helped with all the labor from milking the cows and feeding the animals to harvesting crops and cleaning and tending to livestock, you know, all that good stuff. Julia typically kept to herself as a kid, later describing herself as solitary for most of her childhood. But she did have a group of friends who she felt she could come out of her shell around. And I know a lot of people like that. Heck, I'm I'm like that. It's like people that are just kind of reserved unless they know you, you know what I mean? But then you have those people that are like loud and obnoxious, maybe not obnoxious, I don't know, but they're just kind of like, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not relevant, but now I have to find it. I don't know. It's kind of like a bubbly, outgoing personality per se. Yeah, we can say that Julia was the opposite of that growing up. Now, Julia had never gotten in any trouble at school or with the police, and none of her family members had any type of criminal history either. When Julia became a teenager, she began attending a vocational high school, and on one of her normal school days, a boy named Brandon Chickless had caught her eye as they rode the bus together. Despite the two of them being very different from each other, they had built a relationship and began dating. Julia was more out there at this point, so as she said, she was solitary and kind of like reserved in her early childhood. By the time she had become a teenager, she was living more of like an alternative life. Let's just say she was a little different, okay? And Brandon, he was a really nice boy and he had a love for nature, which is why he had been a long time Boy Scout for over a decade at this point. The relationship between Brandon and Julia wouldn't last long though. Sometimes opposites attract, but in this case, they just couldn't make it work. But they did decide to remain friends after the breakup. And now let's fast forward a few years with Julia now being 21 and Brandon being 20. Both of them had gotten into new relationships with new people and things in life were going well for the both of them. Julia was currently attending college classes and worked as a phlebotomist in a doctor's office. That's just like taking blood from people and collecting specimens. And Brandon had found a career working as an HVAC technician with plans to start his own HVAC business in the near future. Now, there is conflicting stories when it comes to whether Brandon and Julia had kept in contact. Some sources say that they did keep in contact and would frequently have sex with each other, but I believe that the when they were having sex, it was actually during their relationship in high school and not after, but I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to go with that Julia and Brandon hadn't seen much of each other 
recently since their lives had gotten so busy, but that would soon change when Julia texted Brandon one night asking if he had any plans for the weekend. She was like, you should come over because I have like a really cool surprise for you. She had also made him a promise that if he did come over, he could not tell anyone where he was going to be. It's later learned that Brandon had declined many of Julia's previous offers for him to come visit her, but for some reason, this time, he had decided to go. So the next morning, Saturday, June 23rd, 2018, Brandon arrived at Julia's house, and what he thought was going to be a nice time chilling with a friend would quickly turn into something much darker and we'll get into that in a minute later that night brandon's dad paul chiklis had been waiting for brandon to arrive at their late father's day dinner they had missed actual father's day so they planned to have this big dinner to make up for it but brandon never showed up to that dinner and paul could not get a hold of him either despite calling his cell phone numerous times Brandon had told them that morning that he was going to visit a relative and would be back in time for dinner. And as we know, he was actually going to visit Julia, but she had told him he couldn't tell anyone. But the relative that he had told his family he was going to see told him they had never seen Brandon that day or even heard from him. By the next day, Brandon's family had become increasingly worried about him, and rightfully so, and they go to report him missing. Not showing up to last night's dinner was already out of character for Brandon. When he said he was going to be somewhere, he usually would be there. If if he says, I'm going to be back for dinner, they would never think to question whether he was really going to be coming back for dinner. You know those people where they'll say something like, oh, I'm going to do this. And you know right when they say it okay, we'll see, you know, type thing in your head because some people tend to make false promises, if you will. And I know a lot of people like that when they say something, they're just like, okay, like, we'll we'll see. We'll see if that happens. But there are also people where if they say they're going to do something, you know you can trust that person. And Brandon was described to be that type of person where he didn't make false promises or, you know, say that he was going to do something if he wasn't. But the fact that Brandon didn't show up and no one had heard from him, that was a big, big red flag. It wasn't until six days after Brandon vanished that investigators would find any sign of him. This sign was his 2010 Honda Civic, which was parked in a shopping center parking lot nearly 30 miles from the destination he told his family he was heading to, which would have been the relative. Even though they had found his car abandoned, no one had any real reason to suspect foul play yet. This is until another week goes by and authorities receive a report from a jogger stating they had just found what appeared to be a body wrapped in trash bags off the highway in Ringe. This is a small town in New Hampshire just outside of Massachusetts. Investigators are quickly able to identify Brandon, even though he was in a little bit of the later stages of decomposition. It was immediately clear he had been stabbed. The t-shirt he had been wearing had a total of 12 slits in it, so we know he had either been cut or stabbed at least 12 times. So obviously, now that they have Brandon's body, it's no longer a missing person, but now a homicide. They began the investigation right away. They pull Brandon's phone records to find out what he may have been doing on the day he disappeared. This, of course, led them straight to Julia's house. As we know, that was the last known place he had visited that morning, and his phone records also collaborate that. 
Investigators immediately approached Julia asking her if she knew where Brandon might be. Julia first told them that she hadn't even seen Brandon on the day that he disappeared. Like, okay. (laughs) She probably didn't know at this point that they had his phone or like pulled his phone records so quickly. She probably didn't even know they found his body at this point. When they asked her for her phone, she quickly changed her story, stating that she actually had been with Brandon that morning. According to Julia, Brandon came over and rode to the liquor store with her. This is where, according to her, they had purchased a bottle of UV blue vodka to take back to Julia's house. They then sat in her car, listened to music while drinking and smoking. She said they even shared a kiss or two. Then she said after this, they took a two to three minute walk to a tree house in a wooded area just outside of Julia's property. Here is where they continue to listen to music and almost have sex. But Julia said she had changed her mind. After this, she said Brandon flashed a wad of cash at her and then offered to go buy them cocaine to share. Julia said she didn't really want to do cocaine, but ultimately agreed. And this is when Brandon left to go meet with the drug dealer. But according to Julia, she hadn't heard from him after this. Julia willingly showed the police a string of messages between her and Brandon, but there wasn't much that really would have concerned them. But since his phone had pinged there and hadn't pinged anywhere else since then, they were obviously already suspicious of her. Now, the police asked Julia again if she would be willing to let them have her phone so they can check for deleted text messages and things like that. Julia was like, yeah, sure, but like, can we maybe do it tomorrow? But the police were like, well, if your phone comes up missing and you don't like bring it to us and we can't see it, then that's going to be pretty suspicious. So for whatever reason, this causes Julia to be like, okay, whatever, here's my phone. And she hands it over to police. The first thing they noticed when reviewing text messages on Julia's phone is that she had texted her boyfriend, Jonathan Lind, the night before her meeting with Brandon asking, quote, do you think we could add bubbles to a bloodbath? Question mark, end quote. Also stating she will likely have a surprise for him that weekend. So did she kill Brandon in order to take enough blood from him to bathe in? I have so many questions. The fact that she was a phlebotomist and had access to, you know, chemicals that would keep the blood from clotting and thin enough to, you know, bathe in. It makes me wonder if this was her motive. Like if she killed him to, oh my God, I don't know. But it's, it's really plausible. Now, the next thing that struck the investigators as odd was the string of unanswered texts she'd sent to Brandon. The first one was sent at 8 p.m. on the 23rd. So this was the day that he was murdered or, you know, thought to be murdered, the day he went missing. This text read, where are you? Are you okay? Why didn't you ever show up? So that's Julia texting Brandon, trying to make it seem like Brandon had never showed up to her house that day. More texts like this were sent in the days following Brandon's murder. They were basically all the same. Julia just asking Brandon if he was okay, which clearly he was fucking not okay. So by now, the investigators already knew that Brandon and Julia had seen each other that day on the 23rd, the day that he went missing and the day that he was presumably murdered. So why was it that Julia had been sending texts to Brandon's phone asking if he was okay and trying to make it seem like they hadn't seen each other that day that's super sus girl super sus so obviously she was trying to cover up the fact that they had seen each other that day trying to like i don't know give herself an alibi or something like that investigators were now positive they were heading in the right direction with julia being the suspect in brandon's disappearance and murder 
While Julia was being interviewed, officers headed out to her house where her father allowed them to search the property. So just outside of the Enright property, officers spotted the treehouse she had initially talked about in her, you know, first interview. It was called, quote, the BDSM treehouse, end quote, according to Julia. Now, this treehouse had restraints literally built into the walls. Like, this treehouse was was crazy. Like, no kids allowed type shit, okay? But the fucked up thing about it is this treehouse was not even her treehouse. This was the neighbor's treehouse, but she had turned it into some kind of, like, sex dungeon, BDSM sex dungeon for her own fucked up pleasure. But the neighbors never did use the treehouse. I mean, it was on their property, but... Apparently, they hadn't used it in years. Maybe even the thought of getting caught with someone there, like, in the act of sex, just gave her a thrill. Like, she's kind of, she's obviously freaky in a sexual way. So, like, maybe that was, like, a heightened thrill to to know that she could be caught at any moment. Now, even more fucked up, okay? The neighbors that own the treehouse would later say that they had plans of fixing that treehouse up for their three children to play in. They were planning on like getting started on it around the same time Brandon had been murdered there. So the officers get there and they see blood on the staircase of this treehouse under the treehouse. And as they get inside of it, they find blood under a rug that had literally been like it was brand new. You could tell like never even was walked on. It was clear to them that this was Brandon's blood. Like right off the bat, they assumed that. But obviously they had to send it off to where it was later confirmed to be Brandon's blood. After like finishing up in the treehouse, they go out to Julia's car and they find more of Brandon's blood there. And then they go inside to search her house. And if the treehouse wasn't disturbing enough, what officers find inside the Enright house puts the cherry on top of the sick and twisted Sunday that is Julia Enright. Inside the home, jarred animal organs and carcasses were found. Animals that had been wrapped in tarps and animal bones in the form of art bone art if you will it was learned that julia had this weird hobby of using bones to create things that she called art i mean obviously she's not just finding all these animals out dead on the road somewhere there's no way like there was so many that there was just no way i feel like she was killing animals in order to collect bones and then it would later come out that she had this weird hobby of grave robbing if i'm if i'm correct about this that term i guess this is where she would go to graves and dig up bones to use oh i don't know it's too much another creepy thing found in julia's room would be the vials of human blood when julia was questioned about this she told investigators that her friends had willingly gave that blood to her and it held the same sentiment as something like a friendship bracelet like what kind of friends do you have girl like I've never met anyone that's like hey you want to take a vial of my blood and keep it as like a friendship bracelet or something like does that actually happen like really now the most damning of evidence I think would be the journal entries found on her macbook Julia had written that she often dreamt of killing someone now this was written before the murder 
There were also entries dated several days after the murder in which Julia would describe how her current boyfriend, John, brought these dark desires of hers to life. She stated how she had killed Brandon as a gift to John. Like, what fucking, like, what kind of gift is that, bitch? Couldn't do better than that. Go buy his ass. Like, go make him something. Do, I don't know. Give him some fucking bone art. Like, you don't need to kill somebody as a gift. Like, it literally baffles me. I'm sorry. It, it does. Well, she goes on in the entry to say that while she killed Brandon, she had become sexually turned on, thinking about how John would feel about this. She notes that killing Brandon had been a very difficult task, but it was equally exciting and felt like a bonding experience. Girl, what? I'm so confused by that. I believe like she's saying that it was a bonding experience between her and John. But according to these entries, she would later state that John actually didn't like the gift she had given him. Like who would actually like who would like that? I don't get that. Like maybe he maybe John was kind of like a freak, kind of like alternative lifestyle-ish too. But at the same time, like there's a fine line. Like People who like BDSM can often be seen as like violent or um, what do you want to call that? Like a dominant sex partner or something. But not all people that like BDSM are capable of murder. Just because he likes the same sex as you doesn't mean, you know, same sexual, physical, I don't know, sexual things as you doesn't mean that he's going to like that you're a murderer. Okay. But she goes on to say, okay, so she says that John doesn't like it. And she knows this because he had been really standoffish and didn't even want to kiss her anymore, according to her own words. But then she goes on to say that she thinks that with time, he will begin to like and appreciate what she had done for him, which she's talking about killing Brandon. Authorities also learned in this entry that Julia had recently gotten pregnant. She had gone to a Planned Parenthood clinic to have an abortion. And after the abortion, she had asked the clinic staff if she could keep the fetus. Like, what? This girl just gets weirder and weirder. I mean, of course the staff said no, but like, I'm wondering if they would have given it to her, what she would have done with it. Like, I'm just so... Um, she just, she, she, she baffles me. That's, that's all I can say. Okay. So last but not least, with the help of Julia's journal entries and a calendar on her MacBook, they uncovered details about the double life she had been leading. Yes, the double life. So Julia was a phlebotomist by day, had a secret side job as a dominatrix by night. Now, which I've, what I've kind of gathered about a dominatrix, because I had no fucking idea what this was before I started researching this case, it's basically a BDSM prostitute, question mark, question mark, question mark. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. I didn't really get into the darker side of that and researching that. But in the side hustle of a dominatrix, Julia referred to herself as, quote unquote, Mistress Jasmine. In her notes on her MacBook, she had a list of things that Mistress Jasmine would and wouldn't do during one of these dominatrix sessions. But after reviewing this list of things, I don't think there was a lot of things that Miss Jasmine wouldn't do. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to let you know what some of these quote unquote featured activities were. Okay, they ranged from spanking and choking, okay? Okay. That one's that one's not that bad to torture such as electric shock or placing plastic bags over each other's heads. Like, okay. That's that's pushing it. Okay? That's that, that that's just pushing it. 
But let me just tell you, let me just tell you. Julia was making between four and five hundred dollars per dominatrix session. Dude, that's a lot of fucking money. Okay, if I was weird, if I was weird, hey, maybe, but but I'm not, and I can't be, and I'm sorry. But with all things considered, investigators don't believe that Julia's job as a dominatrix had anything to do with Brandon. Um, like they don't think that he had asked her for any services, like he didn't hire her to have sex or anything. Now, around this same time, surveillance from the shopping center where Brandon's car had been found is being reviewed. This showed Julia being the one to enter the parking lot and park Brandon's car before walking out of frame. So, she's caught. Okay, she's caught. With the evidence stacked against her, she was arrested just one month after Brandon initially disappeared. She was charged with murder for stabbing Brandon to death. Julia entered a not guilty plea and so the trial begins. During the trial, a total of nine family members and friends would testify. Among those was Julia's friend who said Julia had basically confessed to killing Brandon, saying, quote, jail won't be that bad, end quote, since she could work out and read because she loved to work out and she loved to read. So, you know, whatever, fuck it. Let's go to jail. Julia herself would also testify on her own behalf. When she gets on the stand, she immediately began to form this self-defense story. So I'm going to tell her story like she told it, okay? This isn't facts. This is solely Julia's version of events. So her story goes, on June 23rd, Brandon had come over that morning to hang out like she had previously stated. They hung out in her car before retreating to the treehouse. There, as they were listening to music and continuing to smoke, Brandon supposedly leaned in toward Julia and touched her leg. Julia admitted that she had planned to have sex with Brandon that day, but when she received a text from her boyfriend, John, it made her rethink that decision. But let me just put, let me put something in right here, okay? This is facts. Julia and John had been in an open relationship, which meant they were together, but they were also having sex with other people openly, and they were both okay with that. Okay, so back to her story. After she rethinks the decision, Brandon continuously tried to kiss her despite Julia saying no. This is when he grabbed her jaw and forcibly kissed her while pushing her into a corner of the treehouse. Julia then goes on to describe what she was wearing that day. A white crop top with a zipper down the front, brown, a brown cardigan, and camo jeans with a broken zipper. Now she goes on to say Brandon had unbuttoned her pants while still cornering her. He then placed two fingers inside of her as she tried to fight him off. She said, quote, It hurt a lot. I kept screaming at him to stop. End quote. Did it hurt more than electric shock? Hmm, that's just a question. I'm just curious. But when he didn't stop, this is when Julia said she reached for the knife she'd always carried on her hip. She closed her eyes and began swinging the knife. Once Brandon had been stabbed, Julia went into her home where she cleaned up and changed clothes before hopping into her Prius and driving to her boyfriend John's house. She told John she needed help and without question, he rode to her house with her where she showed him Brandon's body. According to Julia, Brandon was face down and unresponsive. John then helped wrap Brandon's body in the blank in a blanket and a tarp that had already been laid out on the treehouse floor. Okay, so you're telling me you didn't premeditate this shit, yet there's a blanket, a tarp, and a sheet, let me let me just add, 
lot just laying on the on the treehouse floor for no fucking reason is it, i mean do people do that john then placed trash bags around brandon's body and secured them with duct tape before leaving the treehouse with Brandon's body, Julia recalled how she removed the Sims card from Brandon's phone, but she doesn't give any reason why she did this. She doesn't know. When asked why she hadn't just contacted the police since she claimed to have killed Brandon in self-defense, she said she was in denial and didn't think anyone would believe that that happened to her. Julia and John loaded Brandon's body into her car and drove around until they found a spot to dump him, which would end up being off I-17, I think. I'm sorry. I, I didn't write that. I don't think I wrote that right. But it's in Ringe, New Hampshire, like I previously stated, just outside of Massachusetts. The prosecution then asks Julia why she had never mentioned the sexual assault before today. And then she stated that it had taken her months to finally come to terms with it. She had apparently been so scared to talk about it. She said she hadn't even told her boyfriend about it. And that's where her story ends. Now, prosecutors began the cross-examination after a 15-minute break. The first question Julia was asked was if she had ever fantasized about killing or hurting anyone. She said no, but that she would have wanted people to think that about her. I mean, I guess she's saying she would have wanted people to think she was capable of killing someone. She goes on to say that when she was younger, she wanted to have this, like, dark persona about her um this is when the prosecution began showing all the journal entries we talked about earlier they were showing them to the jury and though julia had come off as very believable when telling her story of self-defense the evidence completely shut it down the jury found that julia hadn't actually been sexually assaulted she planned this murder out and even tried to obtain an alibi by sending those text messages to brandon's phone after she already murdered him um, my theory on the whole bloodbath thing still stands as what I said earlier. She thought that John was going to be into that sort of thing, like taking a fucking bath in someone else's blood. Like she legit thought that John was going to be turned on by this. So she's like, okay, I'm going to sacrifice my friend who is a good person. She probably thought that he was just an easy target. So she sacrificed him to try to please someone that obviously isn't even into that kind of thing. Like, how stupid must she feel now? It's also determined via credit card statements presented to the jury that after dumping Brandon's body, Julia and John would go out for sushi as if nothing happened. Of course, not buying her bullshit. I'm not buying her bullshit. The jury didn't buy her bullshit. And that's why they found Julia guilty of second-degree murder and she is sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Now, since Julia had told of John's involvement with moving and dumping the body, he too is arrested. Not only did they have Julia's testimony, though, they also had John's phone records at this point, which put him at the scene of where Brandon's body was placed. Um, John is currently out on bail, though, and forced to wear an ankle monitor and is not allowed to have any contact with Julia or her family. Not sure what's going to happen to him yet. I may do like a quick update if something does progress in this case. But as of now, that's where it stands. I feel really bad for Brandon's family. His mom says that where his body was dumped, 
you know, and where his car was found are the only two ways, like the roads they were found on. So his car and his body are the only two ways she can get to work. So every day she has to wake up and decide whether she's going to drive by where his body was dumped or drive by where his car was abandoned. Every day she has to have that reminder that her son was taken from this world over someone else's selfish acts. I also watched an episode. I don't know exactly what the show was. I actually saw it on YouTube. And it was an episode of like people that were in jail. And Julia Enright was on there. And I can almost see how manipulative she is. Because there for a second, I'm just like, wait, this girl? This girl did this? For her to be like in that jail acting innocent saying I would never hurt my friend it's all bullshit and it's, it's actually quite scary how manipulative people can be and I feel really bad for Brandon once again I feel like he just thought he was going to go over there and have a good time and it didn't end that way so I guess that is all for today I'm going to be better about posting I've had a lot going on recently with my mental health and when I'm doing these stories it it really doesn't help when I'm already like struggling. So I hope you all understand that. But I will be back on Saturday with another episode as scheduled. And I also need to plug my new podcast, Crime Weirdos. It's going to be where I talk about everything, all things true crime. It's not going to be limited to just deadly damsels, you know. So go check it out anywhere you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening now. I hope you like it and I will see you next time. Bye.